Welcome everyone to the Politics Matter podcast. This episode I'm very excited about. Our guest today is Professor Adrian Schweitzer. He is an associate teaching professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He received his PhD from Loyola Chicago in philosophy. He's the author of numerous journal articles covering famous philosophical characters such as Nietzsche and Kant, and he is currently writing a book titled The Events of May 1968, The Art and Philosophy of Revolution, that is expected to come out next year. So stay tuned for that. All right, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and here we go. Three, two, one. All right, we are live. Thank you, sir, for joining the show. Yeah, happy to be uh, here. Yeah, before we start, I want to thank you for for your class. It's kind of combined two of my my interests, politics and philosophy. And mm-hmm. so it, it really lends a new perspective on on the landscape. So thank you for that. Sure. Yeah, I, I enjoy the class as well. I like same, yeah, similarly, I like kind of connecting theory to real political history and real political yeah. events. Um, could you give the the listeners a little backstory on you and um, and how you grew interested in this field of philosophy and in particular politics? Yeah. Um, so when I went away to undergraduate, I didn't know much about philosophy. I'd come across it a little bit in passing. I think that's common for people before college to not know much about philosophy. Um, I think there were some philosophy books on the shelves, you know, in my parents' house growing up, but again, I didn't have much association with it. And then when I got to university, um, I went to Lehigh University, which is just outside of Philly. Um, I had an open elective opportunity. And so someone on the dorm hall that I was living on um, recommended that if I liked literature and I liked writing and thinking this kind of stuff that I might check out philosophy. And sure enough, I took a philosophy class on their recommendation. And there was something about it that was really um, just, you know, it, it suited me, it suited my way of thinking. Um, I've always been, you know, I tended towards, you know, reading a lot and critical, critically thinking about questions. And I didn't really have a name for that prior to coming to the discipline of philosophy. Um, and so that first class in undergraduate really spurred my interest. And then I had the good fortune to work with a number of really good advisors. Um, Lehigh is kind of a small liberal arts college. It's kind of, a, I think it's like I don't know what they call it, like a secondary Ivy League school. So it's a you know very good school. I was very you know very honored to be able to go there. Um, but I had really good advisors, and working with them um, really helped also. So it, you know not, I had my own interests, but then I got a lot of encouragement from my advisors, um, and that was how towards the end of my career, um, my undergraduate career, I got some advice to maybe try graduate school or at least think about graduate school, and that came from my advisors, and that was. Really, again, very nice of them to take the time to, you know, I don't know, care about my yeah. further education and support it. Um, and then, so then over the course of my graduate studies, I, I, I worked in Chicago. I did my degree between Loyola and Northwestern in Chicago. Um, yeah, I, was, I wasn't particularly interested in pl- political philosophy at the time. I was working in more traditional fields, what, what in philosophy is called metaphysics and epistemology. But as I've kind of moved on with my own research and my own teaching, I became more and more interested in political philosophy. Um, so though my schooling isn't in it specifically, my subsequent kind of career has been interested in it. And I was away in Maine for 18 months, uh, about a year and a half ago, and I wrote a book on political philosophy. And so, yeah, it's, just, it's kind of been in the background, maybe is a way to say it. I don't think there was one thing that kind of occasioned my 
turn towards political philosophy, but um, kind of just over the course of working on philosophy, coming back to Marx and Machiavelli and Hobbes and, you know, a lot of contemporary Marxian theorists as well, just kind of spurred my interest. There's some contemporary French thinkers who I work on, Michel Foucault and, and Gilles Deleuze, both of them um, kind of took a political turn in their philosophy. And, and just because I was already thinking about their work, I went in the direction of political, um, political thought. Uh, so you said that you said that you wrote a book. Um, what is it? What's it? Mm -hmm. What is it called? Mm -hmm. Well, it's about 1968, the protests, the student protests and the worker strikes in 1968. Um, I specifically focused on in France. My training is in um, modern German and French philosophy. And so I, you know, you have your choices when you do these kind of research projects. And with something as large as 1968, um, I got some advice that focusing on a particular, you know, location or a particular subset of political questions in uh, in a region would make the book just more, hand, you know, more doable because, you know, there were events in 1968 in Mexico City, in Tokyo, in the United States, all over the over the all over the world. There was a, a kind of global crisis, and so I um, focus on um, May 68, May and June 1968 in France. And in French, they um, still to today they refer to it as Les Événements de Mai, um, which is in English is the events of May. And so the book is the events of May 1968, and it's getting finished up and refined, but um, it'll come to publication probably, hopefully within the year. Um, that's, so that's very exciting. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I was interested in like, um, you know, 1968 and it, and there's more talk of it nowadays with, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And a few years ago, there was the Occupy Wall Street movement. There was a, there was, there, there are occasional ref references back to 1968 as one of the last moments of real, you know, real revolutionary or radical political events. Um, and I was interested in, in thinking about how 1968 sets the precedent for what we're doing in a contemporary context when we are calling for systematic change or looking at institutions and institutional biases. And then also thinking about the ways in which 1968 didn't really impact, have any lasting impact or lasting effect. Um, in fact, after the student unrest and the worker protests or the, the worker strikes, um, I think there was something like 9 million people uh, on strike in, in France in, that, uh, in those months, yeah, which is a really, you know, a large number of people on strike. Um, but after those strikes and those protests, uh, Francois Mitterrand, who was the prime minister of France at the time, called for a re-election and he actually won by a larger margin than had, he had originally been put wow. into power. And so I, I find this really interesting is that, you know, thinking about kind of our contemporary political circumstances that we, we do have you know, what we might call a kind of left or socialist um, activism going on. But the lesson of 68 might be that conservatism might become more entrenched and gain more popularity as a consequence of this. Yeah. This is what happened in, in France in the 60s, in the late 60s. And then that really sets the stage for the rise of conservatism and neoconservatism in France and England and the United States as well. And so I think that's really interesting too, to think about how 68, like, it aimed to change things in a progressive develop direction and it ended up actually um, spurring quite a bit of yeah, conservative. Yeah, I, I completely um, agree, especially now. Um, some of the forceful nature of, of some of the individuals is really pushing people further. Th mm -hmm. They were in the center further to the right. So. Right, absolutely. Yep. Yep, and, and we saw. Very relevant now. The Right. So I know you mentioned constitutional law. 
um, that was something that you were interested in. Um, did that, did that kind of like, was that a segue to your political philosophy or was that? Well, yeah. So I was a philosophy undergraduate and when you're a philosophy undergraduate, and this was back in the nineties, I was in undergraduate. So I've been out of university now for a while, but when you're an undergraduate in philosophy, um, you, you know, you're not quite sure what you're going to do with that degree. Um, I got good advice at the time, and it's, it's, it's advice I try to share with everyone, and that is that a philosophical degree or a political science degree or a political theory degree really prepares you for a number of jobs. It doesn't have that kind of one-to-one, you know, like I'm studying, you know, pre-nursing, and so I'll become a nurse, that kind of thing. Um, and so I was thinking about what am I going to do with this undergraduate degree, and a very typical uh, next step is law school. And so I went through, I studied, studied foreign, took the LSAT. I applied to law school, um, mainly in and around Philly and New York. I'm just from back East. And so I thought I'd, you know, want to kind of stay back East. And I was interested in constitutional law at that time. That's what I, when I imagined going on to study law and practice law in some capacity, I imagined studying and practicing constitutional law, whether as a, you know, um, a kind of practitioner or whether as a research attorney or some kind of academic, uh, you know, someone maybe teaching law in, a, in an academic setting. And so that's where that starts. Um, that's where that comes from, is that that was my original interest coming out of undergraduate, you know, at what, 20 years old, 21 years old, um, and thinking, well, what am I going to do with this philosophy degree? Oh, you know, going on to law, philosophy sends a lot of people on to law, and most people that study philosophy undergraduate end up doing quite well in law school. And so I thought, well, that'll be a kind of natural progression for me. And then after I went through that, I thought I really would miss philosophy if I, if I went the law route. Um, and that was just a decision I made, you know, at, at some point in my life. And, and I, don't, I don't regret it, certainly. Um, I, it, this profession suits me a little better than I think law, but that's where that constitutional law comes from. But I think it's the, I think it's the most theoretical and most philosophical um, branch of law because of some questions around you know, what even the Constitution is. It's a self-declarative document that founds this country. And growing up in Philadelphia, you know, I'd walk by Ben Franklin's grave. And to me, Ben Franklin was just, you know, just a person. You know, I know he has, these figures have a certain status in the in the American myth or in American history. Um, but to me, growing up, growing up in Philly, you know, it was just like, oh, Constitutional Hall was just like where we'd sometimes like skateboard and, you know, just hang out. And, and so what, it, it, to me, the thought that, just a group of, of quote unquote, you know, regular people wrote a document that founded a country and that that document is then to be the basis for all subsequent legal and judicial decisions is yeah. really fascinating. I mean, it's really wonderful and scary and all the things, you know, it's like quite amazing. actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's quite amazing. Quite amazing. How well, it's been, how, how well it's worked, you know, like I, I, you know, we despair at times at the future of, you know, our, our democracy and parliamentary processes, but it's proven to be quite durable, you know, like it's, um, you know, it, it took the very serious hit of divide, I mean, the civil war and the, the you know, separation of the two parts of the country and, the, and American democracy survived that. Um, and it's just, again, really remarkable to me that, you know, some, you know, some Pennsylvanians and some Virginians and some, you know, New Yorkers got together in Philly and, and wrote this down and somehow that's the basis for our country and that's our basis for law and, and the judiciary. And, and that's really yeah. fascinating to me. So. I do have to say that your experience as uh, as an undergraduate student is very, very similar to mine. I am having some really, really good guidance from my, uh, my professors on, on the future of, of my degree field. So yeah. And I think 
I think that's something that that a lot of college students feel that a lot of professors are very, very, very helpful with the student's future. Right. This is one of the nice things about UMKC. We're a large state university, but at the same time, there are ways in which it feels like a smaller liberal arts school. And the same is, in, is true in the philosophy department, though. You know, there can be large classes of philosophy students. Once you become a major or minor, you know, we're, we're pretty, you know, personable, approachable um, department. And, you know, I work with students all the way through. And, I, you know, there are quite a few students here in graduate school who I still hear from. And so, yeah, that's, I, li I like that about the university. It's not, it's not that kind of anonymous, faceless place that some schools can be. So, so the next thing um, is basically the importance of political philosophy, something that we kind of touched on a little bit. Um, could you dive into the importance of political philosophy and how these works of literature, such as Machiavelli and Hobbes, set the framework for contemporary politics? And I mean, Locke is in Rousseau as well. Right. Yeah. So um, certainly in an American context, Locke and Rousseau are going to be very fundamental or very foundational, given that we have a notion of liberal freedom from Locke, which still defines how I think you and I and most Americans think about freedom something to do with, you know, a robust and voluntary pursuit of what we're going to count as a happy life for ourselves. And as long as that pursuit doesn't trespass against others' pursuits, then we are free to exercise our interests, our motivations, our activities, as far, you know, kind of as far as we can up to the point where it hits up against someone else. And then even when it goes up against someone else or kind of you know, touches upon what their interests are, as long as there's not a dispute about, um, you know, what they need for their freedom and what we want for our freedom in the idea of life, you know, liberty and the pursuit of happiness or the, the pursuit of property, then, you know, we can live peaceably. And then government comes in at the place where we need to adjudicate kind of con contested or competing claims to freedom and liberty. And that's just, I think that's very familiar to most Americans. If um, I, I trust, I don't do this kind of thing, especially under COVID circumstances, but I, I trust if we did some kind of sociological study where we went about, went about and asked people how they thought about freedom, they might use a basically Lockean definition. And so that notion of freedom is so foundational. Um, that liberal notion of freedom is so foundational to Locke. And that he also ties um, freedom to property. And I, you know, um, we are a very proprietary country. We think in, you know, we, we, you know, the, the American dream of owning a home and having something that's one's own and working it and earning it by way of one's labor. These are all very Lockean notions. And so he's just, he's so influential. Um, and then just, I mean, we could go on about the impact of Locke on American thought yeah. for a long time because it's, it's, but one other thing is just, we are a revolutionary country. Um, we were obviously a former colony of a monarchy and we found that, that you know, that to be oppressive and limiting. And so we threw off that government and that, you know, the second treatise of government is about exactly that, that when, at what point does a sitting government become so oppressive or so limiting that you justifiably can throw it off? And, you know, the, the, um, you know, the original, um, colonial, you know, the original people in the 13 colonies felt that, that, that they had reached that point. So in, the, in those ways, you know, that we're, that we're a radical revolutionary country and that we have this liberal notion of freedom locks, very influential. But then, I, I mean, Rousseau is the original democratic theorist and we call ourselves a democracy. There, there's some com complexity to that, I think. Um, 
And there's certainly been a crisis of democratic institutions in the last 35, 40 years in particular. It's been associated more and more with kind of social, social welfare or socialism, um, where, you know, something like um, a uh, social welfare net or this kind of, you know, um, social services, um, th those are democratic institutions that we are all in this together and that we are in this kind of foremost for those who need the most help that we're, you know, that's the democratic idea that we work together, we communalize and we think of ourselves as a collective and that that collectivity actually aids those most in need. Um, and there's been a real, um, I think, challenge to that over the course of, again, the last 35, 40 years, as we've moved more and more towards a kind of neoliberal or neo-capital idea that markets take care of everything. And, you know, if you're not doing well economically or socially or culturally, that's kind of your fault. Um, and a lot of that um, kind of safety net that was in place um, kind of bef just before my time, but, you know, starting in the kind of 90s and into the early 2000s, it was really torn apart. And so though we have a certain democratic um, like sensibility and, and principle, and that comes from Rousseau, um, some of the ways in which that's actually practiced, um, I think have been, has been quite deteriorated recently. Um, but, you know, recent, you know, just one good positive example of this was when COVID, you know, when the COVID crisis really hit in late winter, early uh, spring of last year, and, you know, what was it, 30, 40 million people lost their job, the federal government stepped in and gave aid to, you know, many, many people. And that's a democratic gesture. That's, that's the federal government operating in a democratic fashion because it's taking care of people in need and collectivizing resources and pooling resources towards the assistance of those in need. And so there are still moments and still instances of a kind of democratic policy in the country. The, you know, the thing that's called now called Obamacare, that too is a very democratic, um, you know, policy and practice, but this label of socialism has been linked to it and it's been challenged and, you know, kind of picked away in the courts. So, you know, quite what democracy means in contemporary American setting, I think that's something we're talking about and, and trying to figure out and hopefully something like that democratic spirit will persist. Um, you know, on any given day, I'm more or less optimistic or pessimistic yeah. about yeah, that. It's, a, it's kind of a roller coaster, isn't it? Especially now. Yeah. And yeah. you mentioned... For, oh, sorry. As for the other theorists like Machiavelli or Hobbes, just in the idea of um, the need for some kind of um, sovereign authority. I mean, we still talk about state sovereignty and both of them give the foundations for the notion of a state sovereignty. Um, so when the, um, when the George W. Bush um, administration advocated for war in Iraq and invading Iraq because of their involvement with September 11th. Um, some people, you know, during that time talked about, is it, is it right for a country to invade the sovereignty and kind of compromise the sovereignty of another nation? So that was one instance of that notion of state sovereignty coming up in recent politics. And though that notion of state sovereignty, though changed since Machiavellian Hobbes, that's where that, that idea begins in political. Yeah. Mark, I, I I'm really glad that we started on Machiavellian Hobbes. It's, it's a real, real, and it's hard to explain because it is kind of like, it has a cold tone to it, but like Machiavellian Hobbes, like they have like, it seems as if, and Machiavelli specifically, he, he speaks of good as effective and not more like moral. That's like a real 
like realistic way of looking at at life and political life in particular and i just found that like yeah. super interesting i mean yeah but yeah what, what, yeah one of my friend, one of my friends um works in the nonprofit sector in chicago and she and i talk quite a bit she was a philosophy undergraduate student in her own in her own past and she talks about the difference between an organizer and an activist and an activist um just to kind of give a concrete contemporary example of this, an activist has room for other values, moral values and ideas of how perhaps we ought to be, um, you know, uh, certain ideals that we, that we work towards. And then an organizer is more pragmatic. An organizer thinks in terms of, maybe in terms of ideal circumstances, but then they set about compromising and changing those, those ideals to fit what's going to actually be effective and what's gonna actually get passed. And so Obama comes out of the organizer tradition in Chicago. There's a, you know, pretty significant social activist group in Chicago, or a social activist history in, in Chicago. And I think you saw this a bit in his politics that, that sometimes, um, you know, bailing out the banks, for example, um, after the, you know, the economic collapse, that bailing out the banks struck a lot of people who voted for him and left activists as compromising his principles. Like why would a left oriented or left liberal identified president support Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and Bank of America? And, but I think it's his organizer mentality that thought, well, you know, pragmatically speaking, if we have a wholesale collapse of the economic sector, that's going to impact, you know, a lot of people outside of that economic sector. And it's that yeah. kind of real politics and pragmatic approach that Machiavelli, um, yeah, is, is rightly associated with from a very early stage that he's not thinking necessarily in terms of ideal circumstances. He's trying to think about real circumstances yeah. and, and how do you, how do you, how are you effective under real circumstances? Not, not under ideal circumstances. Cause if you're interested in ideal circumstances, politics is exactly. probably, we had that place. conversation in class about his perspective on living in the clouds and yeah, it's, it's very, very, it was really interesting. Made me think a lot about it. Yeah. The thing you mentioned about um, how Americans are kind of material by nature, um, and well, humans have become kind of that way. This this kind of leads to the next question about Hobbes. So we we spoke of natural law, and Hobbes kind of has an assumption that everyone innately strives for peace in order to like survive. Natural law, like, um, do you think that with material? things such as land or just money has that had like an a, an influence on our on our drive for peace like our our desire for peace mm -hmm. yeah well hobbes does have a couple passages in leviathan about the need for property to supplement or complement one's self-preservation because he recognizes that you know, if we have this kind of biological or mechanical or just um, basic impulse to preserve ourselves, to persist in our being. He was friends with this Jewish philosopher who I work on quite a bit, Spinoza. And Spinoza puts it um, in his book, The Ethics, he puts it as all beings tend to persist, you know, tend to try to persist in their being. Um, and I, you know, I think that Hobbesian notion is, or that Spinoza notion is in Hobbes. And so, yeah, the, Hobbes recognizes that to be self-preservative or self-advancing, you're going to need resources beyond yourself. We are, none of us are self-sufficient. 
And something that never came up in our discussion of Hobbes is that he's working on a condition of scarcity of resources. Um, and that is a, um, you know, a soci socioeconomic assumption that there are, uh, there, that there is a scarcity of resources. That notion of scarcity of resources also informs um, certain developments in capitalism around the time that he's, that he's um, writing, you know, colonial and imperial capitalism to go off, you know, we're sitting in the country, go off to the new world and, you know, claim resources and send those resources back to continental Europe and the UK. So the notion that the world didn't have enough material for all people and that we would run out of food or space or, you know, water, these kind of things, that's a basic assumption of Hobbes. And so if you put those two together, oh, we're all driven to persist in our being and we live under conditions of scarcity of resources, then property claims are going to be sites of dispute. He doesn't like, he doesn't spell that out as much as he, you know, perhaps could have or should have. Um, but I think that's behind the, the idea that we need government. We need, we need the idea of a commonwealth, pulling, you know, kind of bringing our, our wealth claims and proprietary claims together and then having them governed by a state sovereign. Um, I think that's the thought process. And then Locke, you know, a good reader of Hobbes or a good thinker through Hobbes is going to write along these same lines that what we really need government for is the protection of property and the, the resolution of uh, proprietary disputes, you know, so I, you know, you and I are our neighbors and, you know, you claim that some parcel of land is yours and I think it's mine. And, you know, that that's, that's when we might, um, well, under those circumstances, probably just talk to kind of our city council or someone, you know, a neighborhood council and, and, this, and, and resolve it that way. But property as an important part of how we understand our own lives or our own freedom, I think is, is it's there in the tradition for a long time. And certainly America, given its strong capitalist association or identification, has just, you know, turned that thought up to about, a, you know, 100%, you know, that we just, we so associate our own personal well-being the, the well-being of our families and our loved ones and with property and possession. Um, so it's, it's, I don't think uh, Hobbes or Locke could have possibly an anticipated how robust capitalism yeah. was going to become. I mean, Marx even, even Marx, you know, does a really great job talking about capitalism and, and yet he had no idea how big capitalism was going to be. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I, you know, I think they're thinking, Locke and Hobbes are thinking, yes, property and claims on property are going to be part of what we're going to, we're, we need to count as like my own well-being. And then capitalism almost just, um, you know, yeah. intensifies that correlation. No, perfectly and then we find our, actually, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I like about philosophy, cause I mean, I've read like Nietzsche and thanks to that nature. And, um, just, how do you say his name? Just, just says, yes. oh, um, yeah. and I've noticed that, those types of works of literature are kind of like up to the interpretation. Like you read it and your brain, you're trying to figure it out. But with political philosophy, it feels like they are a little bit more concrete. Like with Hobbes, like we were talking in class about the judicial system and how he basically spelled it out. Like it should be the right of the sovereign to appoint uh, like a sort of interpreter of in our case, the constitution. And I find that super, super interesting how he basically like called it or, or if our, our system of governance was kind of based off of that and it just like progressed right. through the time. Yeah, no, it's really, it's, I mean, 
there is always room for interpretation. And, and one of the things I do as a professor, um, I try to do it with a, you know, soft touch is, I mean, everything I say in class is my interpretation of the text. I mean, I can't not do that. I think that's my responsibility um, in order to kind of, you know, exposit the text as I have to present it in a certain light. Um, so, you know, that, that the text might not seem as open-ended as, um, you know, Dostoevsky's liter literature or Nietzsche's, you know, Nietzsche's, um, what do we even call Nietzsche? I mean, he was kind of a philosopher, kind of a poet, kind of, I mean, he was, he's a very particular kind of writer. No one's quite like Nietzsche. And so there is, that feels like there's more room for interpretation in other philosophies, but there still is quite a bit of room for interpretation in political philosophy as well. And we'll see this quite a bit with Rousseau and Marx in particular. I mean, Rousseau is, you know, one of the originators of democratic theory, but he also doesn't quite have in hand what that means and, and quite how you are democratic in, in not the party sense, but in the political philosophical sense. And so there's a lot more room for interpretation with, um, with Rousseau and again, especially with Marx that, you know, whole generation, multiple generations of people have spent time trying to figure out Marx and understand what he's saying. So maybe as the, um, I don't know, the sphere of political philosophy gets bigger and more complicated, the texts also reflect some of that complexity and call for, I don't know, just put more demands on us as interpreters. Um, but yeah, I, I also just to remind, yeah, the, the way in which Hobbes anticipates the right and need for the sovereign to appoint the judiciary, that's really striking that that's 1650. And it's something that we subscribe to in the country, though, again, there's some discussion around it now that perhaps, um, you know, after I think um, Chief Justice Roberts has come out on the side of certain policies that, you know, are left associated or liberal associated, there is talk of, you know, maybe that the Supreme Court justices should be actually elected officials as well. Um, and so there's, there's some discussion yeah. around this that is the old standing assumption that the executive branch should appoint the judiciary. Maybe that'll come under scrutiny um, in, the, in the years to come. I don't know. Um, but that's certainly- Yeah, you know, uh, today I, I, I read something about, there was like a proposal of um, Supreme Court justices being limited to, to 20 years of service. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is a new interpretation of, of their position by a lot of people. Right, right. Uh, the court is becoming more and more politicized. Yeah. And maybe this, so that to go back to an earlier question you had about my interest in constitutional law, I mean, this is naive, but I was quite young and that, I, you know, naivete and, and youth go together nicely. I mean, that's a nice part of it. Um, but I thought constitutional law at least would uh, avoid politics and playing politics because I wasn't particularly interested in playing politics. Um, I didn't think I'd want a career where I, you know, I don't know, glad handed with my donors and these kind of things. And so I thought if I went into constitutional law, it would just be based in the constitution and thus it would avoid some of the, like the, you know, the um, blowing with the wind kind of, you know, politics of now we're into this kind of thing. And then five years from now, we'll be into this kind of thing. And that was a bit naive to think because we've seen the Supreme Court become quite politicized over the past, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, and perhaps it will become all the more so. The Ka certainly the Kavanaugh um, confirmation hearings were, uh, I mean, hyper politicized. And, you know, I, I however we feel about Brett Kavanaugh and his past, um, you know, I, I, sometimes I'd listen to those and I'd wonder why his fitness as a judge didn't come up as much as his, you know, 
very likely misogynistic and sexually violent or harassing practices, which are worth knowing and certainly worth discussing. But I, you know, it, it, sometimes during those hearings, I wondered why we didn't talk more about like his mm -hmm. actual record because that was the, the perception yeah. there. No, but, I, I completely agree. In my in my very limited and short time studying political science, I've seen that politics and the politicization of of things is basically in everything in in our culture, and it's yeah. very hard to avoid. Especially now, it's it's yeah. very obvious. Everything is um, politicized, yeah. so I I can definitely understand. Uh, yeah. yeah, and before that, before I started in the political science field, I I was the exact same way. Uh, did not yeah. didn't realize it at all until until I started <laughs> noticing yeah. it, and then you notice it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see it everywhere. Yeah. Um, so I do have, yeah. I do have one one last question, um, and uh, you've already kind of touched on this a little bit. So, the U.S. government is there, and I think it's it's pretty obvious, but is is there one piece of of literature that you would say that that's kind of had the biggest influence on our development as a nation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, right, I've talked a bit about um, Locke and Rousseau, both are very influential thinkers. One text um, that doesn't come up as often is this work, The Spirit of the Laws by Montesquieu, oh. who's a, I think a 17th century, um, I'm not I'm not a historian, so sometimes I'm, I'm a little waffly on my dates, but uh, I think a 17th century French political theorist. Um, and the very notion, uh, and we saw this a little bit in Hobbes as well, that there's um, a difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And I, you know, when we're talking about legal interpretation and the role of the judiciary in setting precedent, and that precedent is based on interpretations of former, uh, former decisions, that, I, you know, Montesquieu has this idea that, you know, the, just that human written laws don't have the kind of, um, I don't know, transparent significance as biblical or, or religious texts were supposed to have. So like these other thinkers, Montesquieu is working in a modern political context and where, you know, one could take this kind of, you know, the Bible is the word of God and all we need to do is like discover the, discover its meaning by way of close study of the text. Montesquieu realized that that wasn't the case, that there, there will always be the letter of the law and then something else that he called the spirit of the law and that uh, that our governmental operations were always going to be operating kind of between those two things that you know we'll have official doctrine and we'll have official legal precedent and all these kind of things but then there'll also be something else and that the that that space of the, the something else is where democratic theory um really plays out and so i like i you know montesquieu is a, a quieter influence on a modern modern american democracy um but i think he there, he's He's lurking in the background as well, and I think he was influential on Rousseau and Rousseau's thinking about democracy because the, the you know, and we say this like the spirit of America. I, I'm not sure we use that term as much as maybe former generations, um, but you know, the spirit of America, and that that's a really important part of our governmental system. That somehow we have to feel ourselves to be part of this country and part of the the mm -hmm. governmental practices of our country. And again, I, I think a lot of us are feeling unrepresented or, or excluded or, you know, alienated from those practices. And, and that would be a breakdown of the spirit of the law and the spirit of our democracy. And both Montesquieu and Rousseau realized that that was really foundational to, for a democracy, that you have to, you know, you have to, you know, pay like a, a, um, a certain like 
um, I'm blanking on the word, but a, a certain you know feeling for your country and feeling like you're part of it and feeling you're invested in it and feeling also that the country is invested mm -hmm. in you. Um, like yeah, patriotism. Sorry, yeah, you know that. And Montesquieu gives us that, and so sometimes just to add to the mix of thinkers, um, Montesquieu would also be part of that founding philosophical theory. Um, but, you know, all the credit in the world, honestly. I know he was a slave owner, and I know he, um, right, I think, was sexually violent towards his slaves and these kind of things. So all, you know, and I, I appreciate that we've gotten to the place where we talk in these terms as well, but really do credit to Thomas Jefferson for, you know, like, putting these things together. Like even if he even if he had Locke in mind, if he had Rousseau in mind, or if he had Montesquieu in mind, he and the other writers um, should be credited for all their faults as human beings. They can, I think they should still be credited as really I remarkable. completely agree. 1000% agree that, that the, those individuals, they created something that was long lasting and, and really, really effective yeah. in, in terms of our country today. Yeah, I wish I wish we had a bit more of that spirit, you know, the language of making America great again, great again, and all the um, all the politics that are tied up in that. But I would, you know, feeling that this is a great country precisely because it's like it's kind of a mess and it's kind of a it's a work in progress yeah. always, you know, and that that's really remarkable that we that they did that that they were like let's found a country that's going to be always under construction basically. Um, and that's it really is. inspiring, and and it, but it takes, and it takes. We have to be uh, one of the disappointing things as we become more alienated, and you know, voting turnout drops further and further, and you know, people just throw up their hands and they say, you know, Washington's just a swamp, and who cares about it? There's no, you know, no change, blah blah blah. Is that you know, that's really mm -hmm. what's despairing about that is that democracy only works if we participate in it and feel yeah. ourselves at yeah. responsible. And those people are. Losing that spirit that the country desperately needs. Yeah, desperately. I I want to thank you so much for for joining the show. Um, if you could just yeah. just recap your your book and when when people interested in political philosophy are could could expect to to read it or. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So right the the book is called the events of May sixty eight, um, and it'll be coming out with Edinburgh State uh, Edinburgh University Press because of COVID and coronavirus. Um, everything is different. Um, and so what was, you know, due to be out soon, there's much more question around that, but it should hopefully be out within the next half a year to a year. Um, and so, yeah, that'd be great if, if people are interested. And the way I composed the book, we talked about this a little bit here today, the way I composed the book, it, it is about philosophy. It's about political philosophy, but I also tried to tie it to real political circumstances and real political events in Paris and in the area, you know, the kind of areas around Paris in those months. So some of the, you know, actual uh, testament, testimony from people who are on strike and people who are activists, um, because I, I'm, I'm interested in, in the way that philosophy connects with for lack of a better mm. word, reality and real. And yeah, I will be, I would be excited to listen to it. Once again, thank you very much. Yep. Thanks for chatting. You and as well. Have a good afternoon. All right. That was the politics matter podcast. I want to apologize for the end there. Um, it, the audio actually got a little jumbled up. That's why it sounded so, so abrupt and talking over him. Uh, yeah, but that was just the audio. It wasn't that abrupt. Um, yeah. So his book is set to be released. Hopefully with everything COVID, uh, everything's on track, but his book's set to be released next year. 
And I want to thank you guys for listening. And I want to thank Professor Adrian Schweitzer for being a part of, of this show. And and hopefully we can we can continue down this path of, of getting professors on and, and getting their expert advice and and it, uh, perspective on on the current state of the country. So again, thank you guys, and we'll see you next time.